Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and verse 16. <clears throat> Acts chapter 17, verse 16. <clears throat> now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him, when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. And our subject this morning is declaring the unknown God. Declaring the unknown God. Well, we come to uh, this book of uh, the Acts of the Apostles, which we uh, quite often visit in our gospel messages, our evangelistic messages. And uh, I often mention, although many of you will know this very well, that this book of the Acts is uh, really an account of what the disciples did after the Lord Jesus Christ had died on the cross. And after he rose again, what did the disciples do after that? And the answer is laid out for us in this uh, glorious book. They preached the gospel. They had been given a great commission by the Lord Jesus Christ to uh, go out and teach all nations, teach the world about Christ, teach the world about the gospel, and that is what they did. And uh, the foremost apostle to the Gentiles was uh, this apostle that we will uh, consider this morning, the Apostle Paul, who we know very well. He was the one who was sent with a specific purpose to preach the gospel to uh, the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And that, of course, was a great irony that the Apostle Paul was sent to the Gentiles because of all the apostles, he was the, the most Jewish, if I can put it that way. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That was his uh, own words. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a strict Pharisee. He was somebody who fervently loved the Jewish nation. And we uh, read that in the letter to the Romans of his profound love for his fellow kinsmen. We don't really see that quite so much with the other apostles, but we do know it of the Apostle Paul. He was the most Jewish of the apostles. And so it is ironic that out of all the apostles, it is him who is appointed to be the one who would go to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. But that is what he did. And, uh, well, we find the Apostle Paul in uh, verse 16, he is in Athens. And, uh, well, we all know about Athens, modern-day Greece. Now, this is the year A.D. 51, so around, roughly speaking, 20 years, more or less, after the death of Christ, not very long. And uh, this is the Apostle's second missionary journey. He's gone to Philippi in Macedonia and Thessalonica, that's where he is at the beginning of uh, chapter 17, and then on to a place called Berea. Uh, but uh, Paul has to leave Berea quite quickly because of persecution. People are pursuing him and causing trouble for him. So he has to leave his companions, Paul and Silas, and uh, wait for them in Athens. And so uh, Athens, well, at this stage in history, the time of the Apostle Paul, Athens was not at the height of its glory. We all know 
about the history of Athens, the classical age of the Greeks and Athens, renowned for its uh, art and uh, its philosophy and its great philosophers, Plato and, and Socrates, its drama, its theatre, its democracy, the birthplace of democracy. Uh, but those days had passed and uh, they were still living off the glories, of course, the Roman Empire who were now in charge. They very much admired the, the Greek culture and adopted it for their own. So there was still some of the glory, but Paul is saddened when he goes to Athens. While Paul waited for them at Athens, verse 16, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. So the Apostle Paul, he is in this great city of Athens, and uh, well, we read his soul is troubled. He was uh, grieved. He was uh, moved with sadness because these people in this great city of Athens, they were worshipping idols. They were worshipping, as we shall consider, gods of stone, statues, altars to imaginary gods, so many gods that they worshipped Zeus, Aphrodite, Artemis, Poseidon, uh, Athena. Athens is named after the goddess Athena. And in fact, it was said that in Athens, if you walked out onto the street or onto the walkways, you were more likely to bump into an altar or bump into an idol or a statue than a real person. There were so many gods in that city. It was wholly given to idolatry, and this greatly saddened the Apostle Paul. That was his state. He didn't go to Athens and be impressed by the sights and the sounds. He wasn't uh, uh, ravished by all the philosophy and all the culture. He was saddened. He was stirred in his heart. He was grieved. He knew that these people, this city, great though it was, well, it lacked God. The people lacked God, and that saddened the Apostle Paul. And, well, we ought to have that uh, attitude also. When we look upon the world, we remember this. The world is full of, of culture. The world is full of entertainment. The world is full of great art. And sometimes we get carried away with it, and we think that the world is a great place. But really, we ought to be stirred in our heart, grieved. Because yes, the world has some great things in it, but it is without God. The majority of the people are without God. So we don't stand there and be amazed. We stand there and we think, what a tragedy. So much learning, so much civilization, so much so-called progress, and yet they are without God. And Paul was saddened. And that was his attitude there in Athens. But he has gone to preach the gospel to uh, the Gentiles. And we read that in verse 17. He starts in the synagogue, as he often would, with the Jews. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. And then certain philosophers, we read in verse 18, of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. Now, we don't have time to go through... Uh, what they actually believed. But just to summarize, well, the Epicureans, they had uh, an idea of life that many modern people have nowadays. The Epicureans really 
thought that the meaning of life was just to pursue after happiness. Happiness. That's what people say nowadays. What is your purpose in life? What is your meaning in life? It's for me to be happy. To do those things that make me happy. And it wasn't necessarily in a sinful way for the Epicureans, but that was their goal. I want my life to make me happy. And that's uh, very contemporary. And then the Stoics, well, uh, uh, it's quite complicated really, but as far as I understand what they believed, they went with the, uh, the design of nature. Their uh, great uh, mission in life was not to go against nature. They viewed the world as having an order. The world is ordered. Nature has designed an order to the world. And so we must never go against that nature. We must never do anything uh, unnatural, as it were. Follow the order and the design that nature has shown us. Don't go against that nature. Don't even... Uh, uh, get too emotional. The Stoics, that is what they were most known for. They would never get too emotional. They would never be too grieved. They would never be too anxious, never be too worried, because that's sort of going against nature. Just keep your passions in check. If something happens in your life, just get over it. Just sort of go with the flow. The Stoics, don't get overexcited, overpassionate. Keep your passions in check. And so this is uh, really the kind of philosophy that the Greeks entertain. But they have heard of the Apostle Paul. And some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is so they take him to a place called the Areopagus or Mars Hill which is still there by the way my wife and I visited it last week and uh, this was a place really where uh, philosophers they debated matters of morality and religion and so this uh, apostle Paul has come into Athens and he's speaking very strange things so they take him to the place where they speak about these things and verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. And uh, hence begins this tremendous sermon of the Apostle Paul, the sermon of Mars Hill. I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Now this wasn't a... Uh, uh, a condemnation or a criticism of the Athenians. In fact, uh, we can see it as a compliment. They were superstitious in the sense that they knew there was something more to life. They didn't just see the world and think this is it. This life is the only life. This world is the only world. No, they were superstitious in the sense that they knew there was something else. You are superstitious. You are spiritually minded in a way. And so uh, this is a good thing because I'm going to speak to you of spiritual things. And verse 23, for as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. 
Well, as the Apostle Paul walked around Athens, he saw an altar or a monument to the unknown God. Now, this was actually quite common with the ancient Greeks. They had their gods, their own gods. They had Zeus and Poseidon and all those other gods. But they said to themselves, what if there are other gods that we don't know about? What about them? We have to put up an altar to them just in case they get angry with us because we've forgotten about them or we don't know they exist. So just to cover their backs, they would put up a monument to the unknown God. We know about Zeus. We know about Poseidon. Let's just put one up to the unknown God just in case. So it was to cover their backs to the unknown God whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him declare I unto you. And well, the Apostle Paul is going to say to them that there is an unknown God, a God that is not known to you. He is the true and living God. And I'm going to declare him to you this day. And so this is what he does to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. They worshipped the true God without realizing it ignorant of him and well my first application is this there are many people who do this there are many people who are not uh, particularly religious and they would never go to church but they worship the true and living God without fully realizing it without knowing what they are doing you know there are some people when they are faced with difficulties with times of great stress and fear, they will cry out to God. They will pray. They're not particularly religious. They would never go to church, but they know instinctively to pray. And they are worshipping in a sense. They don't know this God that they are praying to, but they are worshipping him. They are calling out to him. They know he is there. They know that he will hear them. They know that he will answer them. And so uh, they ignorantly worship an unknown God. When people talk about virtues, and there's much talk about virtuous things at the present time, when people talk about justice and truth and faithfulness and things like that, well, they are really, in a way, worshipping God. People who are irreligious, they will say, I stand for truth. I stand for morality. Where do all those things come from? They come from God. You may not know him, but if you value those things, you are worshipping him in some sense, in some way, albeit ignorantly. And then, of course, we have the wonders of creation. So many people watch these wildlife programs. Atheists watch these wildlife programs, and they're so amazed Look at creation. Look at how amazing it is. They marvel. So many people watch these programs, and yet what they're really doing is they're worshipping God, God who has created all of these things. They don't know him, but they are worshipping him. And so there are many people who ignorantly worship the true God, just like the Athenians did. But Paul is going to declare to them, in greater detail, who this God truly is, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, 
Him declare I unto you. Verse 24, God that made the world, he is the creator, and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Well, the gods in Athens, of course, they dwelt in temples. There were temples in every corner, as it were, of Athens. That's where they would put their gods. They would make a statue of their gods and house them in temples. But the true God is not like that. You house your gods in temples, Paul is saying. But God has made this whole world to house you so that you may live in this world. That's the difference between the gods that you worship and the true and living God. God has created this world for you to dwell in, just like you create temples for your gods to dwell in. And verse 25, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Well, the Apostle Paul is just simply saying, God does not need anything from us. If there were no Christians on this earth, if there were no churches on this earth, that wouldn't mean that God has gone away or God is dead. Some people think like this. If Christianity dies, then God is dead. That's what they say, as though God is dependent on us. God is dependent on us as people or the churches, the physical churches. If there were no Christians on this earth, God would still be there. He's not dependent on us to survive. He's not dependent on our faith to survive. It's the contrary. We are dependent upon him. We live and move and have our being in him. That is what the apostle is saying. So God does not need us in any sense. He is self-sufficient. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If there were no Christians on this earth, it wouldn't matter one jot. But well, it matters for us because we are dependent upon him. He giveth to all life and breath and all things. We are entirely dependent upon him. And then verse 26 And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Well, this is a very profound verse. We haven't got much time to go through it. But one thing that this verse does is it abolishes racism. Hath made of one blood all nations of men. The Apostle Paul is saying that the the human race is one family. We are not many different races. We are one race, one family, one blood. And out of that one blood, God created that man, Adam. Out of him come all of the nations. Of one blood, all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth. There's no need for racism. We are all one race. And this is the teaching of the Apostle Paul. No division between us. And then the second part part of verse 26. And hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. 
Well, this is simply a way of saying that God rules over everything. God is sovereign. God hath determined the times before appointed. You know, Athens had its golden time and then it ended. And then the Roman Empire had their golden time and then it ended. Who appoints those times? Who decides when Rome will rise and when Rome will fall? It's not the Roman Empire, that's for sure. It's God. He is the one who rules over all these things. And it's the same for us, our lives. Who decides when we are born and when we die? It's not us. It is God. Who decided that you would be born in the 21st century? You could have been born in the 1600s or in the 1500s or in the 1300s. Thankfully, that's not the case. We're born here in the 21st century of all our comfort and ease. But that wasn't up to you. That was appointed by God. God has appointed the time, the time in which you will live, the time in which you will die, the place that you have been set in, the nation in which you have been raised, the family in which you have been placed. You know, this is the thing. People who reject God, they will tell you, I don't need to live for God. I live for my family. I live for my family. I live for my friends. Who put you in your families? It's God. Who put you in your circle of friends? It's God. You wouldn't know any of them if it were not for the Lord. So this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. We owe everything to him. He is sovereign. He is so unlike any of the other gods that you worship that are housed in temples. But then verse 27, we must move on. Why are we even here in the first place? What is the purpose of life? Well, it is revealed to us in verse 27 that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Why has God even given men life? Why has he created men? Why has he given them the time to live? On this earth, what's the meaning of life? That we should seek the Lord. That's the reason. That's the meaning of life. That's why we are here. To seek the Lord. To find our way to him. To find our way to everlasting life. There's no other reason. You can invent a reason for your life. And many people do. I'm here on this earth to be a... Uh, to get along with my career, to be a scientist, to be a doctor, to be a lawyer. But that's something you've invented. You've decided out of your own mind. But the actual true reason we are all here on this earth is that we should seek the Lord. Everything else is meaningless. We live on this life, on this earth, just for 70 odd years. We read it in uh, Psalm 90 earlier. And then we die. If you live for any other reason, it's meaningless. You can achieve a lot in this life. Yes, we acknowledge that. But it's all meaningless. We all go to the grave. But if you turn to the Lord, then you find the true meaning. Then you find the right way. Then you are led to spiritual life, everlasting life. It's not all meaningless. You found your way to the Lord. 
and he will give you everlasting life, life forevermore. It's not all meaningless. It's not the end anymore. You have found Christ. This is the meaning. This is why God has appointed the times given to men that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, seek and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. What a comfort. You know, there may be somebody here, you feel that you are very far from God. And perhaps in a sense you are. You're very far from God. You're not interested in anything that the word of God has to say. You're not really listening to this message. You're far from God. You live for the world. All of your ambitions are in the world. I want the world. That's what I want. You're far from God. But even if you are far from God, this is the strange thing. God is not far from you. You may be far from God. You've you've put yourself at a distance, but God is not far from you. He is near to each and every one of us. And if you were just to look to him, just to think of him, he will be there. You will hear his call. You will hear him calling you to everlasting life, to peace, to true joy, to true happiness. You'll never find those things in the world. If you are far from God, you are far from true peace. You are far from true happiness. You are far from true love. Because these things can only be found in God. And he is not far from any one of us. He is waiting for you to turn to him. You may not be thinking of him, but he is thinking of you. And he is calling to you. And then, well, the Apostle Paul calls the Athenians to repentance. And we must be very quick with this. For in him, verse 28, we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, He quotes their own poets, the Greek poets, to the Athenians, for we are also his offspring. We have come from the Lord. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. The Apostle Paul has just declared the true and living God to them. So you have no excuse to continue worshipping these statues, worshipping these idols. You ought not to think, I've just told you who God is. I've just declared to you what he is like. You have no excuse now. It would be wrong for you to continue worshipping these idols. And verse 30, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Well, again, dear friends, this is a word for us. Is there somebody here or somebody listening to this message? You've spent a long time ignoring God. Well, God has in his mercy and in his kindness overlooked your rebellion in a sense. That's what that word means, winked at. He has overlooked it, but out of mercy. Not because God doesn't care about your sin. He does care about your sin. But he's overlooked it because he wants to be merciful to you. 
He wants to call you to himself. He wants you to still have a hope of salvation. And now the time has come for these Athenians. Perhaps the time has come for you. You've lived your life many years without God, rejecting him, ignoring him, hardening your heart against him. God has been so patient. He's been so merciful. Anything could have happened to you. An accident, the cutting short of your life, it hasn't. Because God is merciful. But now he commands you to repent. Now he commands all men everywhere to repent. And why? Well, verse 31, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. The Lord Jesus Christ is that man, the God-man, fully God, fully man. We know this. He has been ordained of God, ordained to be Christ, our Messiah, our Savior. And he came into this world to save us from the punishment for our sin and to rise from the dead, which is mentioned here, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Now, for the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, and perhaps for many people, even in the modern age, the resurrection of the dead was a very strange thing. They were not familiar with this. For somebody to come back from the dead, they knew that people died, and they would put lots of things in their graves to accompany them into the afterlife. We see lots of that. But for somebody to come back from the dead, that was ridiculous. Nobody would even think of that. Yes, there's an afterlife, but resurrection from the dead? No, when you're dead, you're dead. That's what they thought. But this was the new thing. Christ has risen from the dead. Why? To give assurance, we read here. Hath given assurance unto all men. What assurance? Well, assurance that Christ was who he said he was. He was the God-man. Ordinary men do not rise from the dead. He is who he said he is. The living God, the incarnate God. And of course, it's given us assurance that Christ has succeeded, as we mentioned on Easter Sunday. Christ has succeeded in paying the price for our sin. We are sinners but by his shed blood, he has paid our sin debt and Christ has risen from the dead. That's the guarantee. That's the assurance that when we trust in him, we have everlasting life. Do you trust in him, dear friends? Do you know of these things? Or are you simply going to harden your heart and live in ignorance? He hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. There is a day coming. That's why God commands all men everywhere to repent. When we go out evangelizing and knocking on doors, some people will say, well, you need to repent, but not me. You are a Christian. If you want to believe in these things, that's fine. You need to repent, not me. I'm all right. I don't believe in these things. 
That's their excuse. But dear friends, there's a day coming, an appointment. We have to stand before God, every single one of us, all men everywhere. That's what the Apostle Paul says. You can't avoid that. And that is why we are all commanded to repent and be ready for that day. And this is the great sermon. Well, one last thing just to mention. Paul departed from among them in verse 33. Some of those who heard him mocked. Others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. But then we read in verse 34, Howbeit certain men clave unto him, and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now we don't immediately learn of a church being established in Athens. We know of a church in uh, Corinth, of course, and Ephesus, and so on, Thessalonica. But we don't really hear of a church in Athens, but we just hear of these believers, Dionysius and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And just note that name Dionysius. Now he was named after a Greek god, Dionysus. But this is the great glory of the gospel. He's named after a pagan god. Doesn't that mean that he's excluded? From God's grace? No, of course not. All he needs to trust in is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is saved. Doesn't matter what your name is. There was a goddess called Diana in Ephesus. If your name's Diana, you can still come. There's an assistant pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. His name is Pastor Ibrahim Ag-Mohammed. His name is Mohammed. Does that mean he's excluded? No. He trusts in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no exclusions. No matter what your name is, no matter what you have done in this world, no matter how great your sin, there are no exclusions. You can come to the Lord. You can know his grace and mercy. You can cleave to Christ. They embrace the gospel. They loved the gospel. And that is the same for us today, just as it was in the time of the Apostle Paul just over 2,000 years ago, or around 2,000 years ago. This gospel has the same power, the same power to save all those who seek after Christ. May we all, each one, seek after him. If you have not found him, this is the purpose of your life. There's no other purpose that is meaningful to you. Seek after the Lord and that unknown God will be known to you. You will know him. You will know his love, his mercy and his salvation. This is the Apostle Paul in Athens. May the Lord bless these words to us.